This podcast is dedicated to the memory of David Faraday, Betty Lou Jensen, Darlene Farron, Cecilia Shepard, and Paul Stein, and to Michael Mejot and Brian Hartnell. This is Zodiac Speaking, a classic gunpoint family podcast. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. When I first recorded the first version of this episode back in August of 2020, the 340 cipher remained one of the truly great mysteries in the history of American true crime study. Then you might have heard Northern California had a whole bunch of fires, and one of which came about a kilometer away from my house. After months living in a hotel, we got back, and in that time period, it got cracked. No more is the 340 cipher, the golden holy grail waiting to be cracked. And I should have done this a couple of weeks ago, but I still didn't get it. And what the 340 cipher is, is so convoluted because it's not a single theory cipher. Now, how it was cracked is a big, massive, confusing mess. But I'm going to give it a bit of a shot. Part of it was the fact that we were all kind of locked down in 2020. Even those of us who weren't evacuated, we all sort of had a little time on our hands. And cryptologists really like to spend a lot of time working with this. And what's interesting in Cryptology isn't just that it is codes. It is codes with methodologies. And this becomes really important because anyone can make a code that can't be broken. It just has to not have a methodology for solving. I've actually made codes that are not unbreakable because a key does exist but are so difficult to decipher without the key that they are practically unbreakable. Even something simple as every fifth letter is noise, and you know it's noise, and you just randomly generate it, that becomes nearly unbreakable. I've heard someone say that uh, doing what's called a three-position cipher, where you have uh, three, basically three different keys, just single substitution. And if you substitute a space in with that, and you, you still space the words, that they become almost unbreakable. But more on that later. So what happened here was the first cipher was super simple. That's actually a bit of a overstatement, but the fact is any competent code breaker, or in this case, any competent puzzle person really could have set their mind to it and broken it in a weekend. A guy named David Oronchek, who's a web designer in Virginia, had been trying to solve it for more than a decade. I'd heard of him. And honestly, the ciphers don't interest me that much because while they are a fascinating aspect of the case... Ultimately, they don't tell us much. Even now that we've broken it, we thought once we break the ciphers, 
and particularly the 340 cipher, we will know everything. But we're not really much further along now that we do. Now, after Aronchek made a bunch of videos for YouTube about the cipher, others started to climb on board into a breaking it pattern. And notably, this is the Australian mathematician Sam Blake. And what's fascinating is he actually calculated that there were more than 600,000 ways that this code could be read. I had seen further numbers. I think I saw one that positional combinat combinatrix would have meant there were something like 40 quadrillion or something like that, uh, similar to the number of atoms in the universe. Interesting. But what happened was another codebreaker. I believe it's Jarl van Eyck. And he wasn't even a real, like, full-time codebreaker. He was a warehouse operator. I think he was Belgian. And he wrote a codebreaking software. A really fascinating team. What's really cool is that they looked at it, instead of approaching it as a code, they approach it as an algorithm, which is very different. It's smart. It's really super smart. Because when you break down, for example, when they were breaking down the 408 cipher, they were using a crib by looking for kill which has a double L. Double L just happens to be one of the most common dual letters. So when you're trying to break that in a simple substitution cipher, or even a relatively complex substitution cipher, as it's turned out to sort of be, you can, one, almost instantly tell if two letters are the same by having the similar start-stop, first-second, positional relationship between them. That's actually an important fact. This is one of the weaknesses, actually, of the old Enigma machines, is that they could not code the same letter twice. So if you wrote LL, and L the first time coded to P, and the second time it would have to be something other than P. That's one letter down, one less thing you have to look for. So they crunched some numbers, and they did some really interesting analysis, and you have to analyze... When you're breaking down, particularly an algorithmic methodology, you have to break it down into output and input. You have to figure out what the encryption methodology is. Now, you could do the easy thing, and you could just literally throw, just do a generate, one letter, and then it cycles through another letter, and it cycles through with every letter, and then do that all the way through. A possibility. A fun one. Very hard to do. Very time-consuming, even with a supercomputer. There's a great quote. Uh, there was a wonderful article, by the way, in Threat Post about this, and there's a great quote they had that actually, I think, comes from Vice uh, about how this all started, and this is maybe the only thing that ever has a sentence. Uh, this is uh, Blake talking about uh, Aronchak. So I reached out to him originally through a YouTube comment, and then we got chatting, and it went from there. I got serious about it in March of this year, and we spent a lot of time on it between March, uh, having no success, no success, no success, and then we just started to piece it together. Another thing this, like said, is there's been a lot of solutions in the past that have required artistic creativity and a lot of bending and massaging of the cipher in order to make 
a few legible words, then something like a sentence, and often then the name of somebody who could be associated with the case. What we did was a very different approach to that. We looked at different possible ways you could read the cipher, what other reading directions could have taken in terms of trying to write it out, and we then ran them through supercomputers looking for a solution in that direction. They realized something very smart. Not all writing systems are right to left. In fact, not all writing systems are consistently one direction or another. One of the oldest forms of writing actually used what they call an, I believe it's an ox path methodology, which is you go from left to right, and then the next line down, right to left. And that's actually better for the eyes technically, because you can scan it going back and forth instead of having to jump back and jump back. Once they started running it through, they started to recognize the words. The message reads, I hope you are having lots of fun in trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise. So they are afraid of death. I am not afraid because I know that my new life is life will be an easy one in paradise death. Huh? What's interesting is once you see it, some things become obvious. The directional aspect is something very interesting. That, that's something you have to sort of intuit. More interesting, though. If you look at it, the double L is actually fairly rare. Will shows up, but that's fairly all. Oh, yeah, Will shows up twice now I think about it. A couple other things. Paradise, spelled P-A-R-A-D-I-C-E, shows up three times. That's a very, very, very key clue. That if someone had managed to try to find eight-letter snicks through this, and then recode in it, and work backwards from there, Paradise would have been the perfect word for it. But you had to know the direction. You had to understand that this was not a linear, as we think of it, concept. The FBI confirmed it, which is amazing. I think really one of the things is that when you look at how this was solved, you start to see things that could have been done decades ago. And once even honestly someone had, if someone had figured out, oh, paradise is there and the directions are weird. And that it is a multiple, it is a homophonic and a substitution cipher. That's a lot of steps, isn't it? Once you started looking at things like that, figuring out path, figuring out not only letter combinations, but letter positioning, because that's always key. Once you have all of that and you start to work through, it doesn't become easy, but it becomes apparent. But the 340 says nothing. Honestly, it's a bit of fluff. It is the puffing out of a chest of a guy who had gotten lucky. But there are some points here that are interesting to note. Uh, that wasn't me on the TV show, of course, talking about being with everyone's friend Mel Belli. I miss him. Uh, and his appearance on the Jim Dunbar show. We all knew it wasn't him, but he had to confirm it. It was probably at a time when they didn't yet. Or at least that hadn't been made apparent. He brings up the slaves again and paradise. 
which is an interesting psychological thought because he's, I think he's talking about paradise because he thinks he's going to get caught. That his reward is going to come. And the only way his reward of paradise comes is if he dies, if he's nicked. I think one of the most powerful things here though, is that this has been verified through methodologies that are massively more complicated than were available at any point previously in history. But he says something interesting at the end. I know that my new life is life will be an easy one in paradise death. He does say death twice also. Doesn't that indicate that his current life is difficult? It's hard. It's to the point where death and the possibility of achieving paradise because he has his slaves is better than what he has. I think this is him asking them to catch him. Maybe, maybe not consciously. I think that one of the things here that's interesting is also it's a diagonal read, which is interesting on a couple of points. One, uh, when you look at a di diagonal read, it's actually much more difficult, but it's found in a 1950s cryptography field manual, which probably hadn't been looked at much. Another thing is actually that is very similar to helical scan methodology, how images are encoded on magnetic tape. There's more about that that'll come out sooner or later, but this is a fascinating, fascinating thing. And I hope I get to do some more research on it, but I'm going to move away from the ciphers after this. Hopefully it's not going to be another eight months. Uh, hopefully there's no fire between now and the next one before I do my next episode, which is going to be the first of my start of the look at how the Zodiac crimes affected popular culture. I'll be looking at films. I'll be looking at television. I'll be looking at books. And first we're going to look at the fiction and the fiction is going to be everything from Dirty Harry all the way up through Zodiac, which is a fiction film, but there's a lot more about that. And I'll be looking at what the different tellings and interpretations of the Zodiac mean and how they reflect not only the crimes, but the times in which the things were created, some of which very close to the crimes, some of which a lot later. So I'll help you stay tuned. Thanks for listening.